I'm Katie. I'm Vinny. And this is Learn, Learn Real, Real Good. Good. Do you remember when we started this podcast? We a wanted long time to have ago, a song. We had a jingle. Yeah. And we have not <laughs> attempted it in no, years. No. I wonder if you remember your notes. No, it's like the NBC no notes. Do you remember? I could try. One, two, three. Learn, Learn Real Good. I think I was off. Well, that's, anyway. That's the song. <laughs> that's what the show's been missing <laughs> all this time. How have you been, Vinny? What's new? Yeah, What's on your I'm mind? I'm good. Uh, you know what? I just found out we're about to have a heat wave. <laughs> and I don't like that information. You know, we try to stray away from conversations yeah. about time because well, guess episodes what? come out way later. This heat wave has got me shook. This is going to be coming out in November, probably. November, <laughs> yeah. Late November. Yeah, where I'll be grateful for a heat wave. Would you? No. Or fall No, people? I love fall and winter. Summer. Eh. October, I'd say, is my favorite weather month. September is still hot, as we currently are yeah, feeling. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because we are currently all in September. All right, all right. It's September 3rd, 4 p.m. I said it. Okay, <laughs> deal with it. Deal with it. It's a different time for yeah, you, yeah, so yeah. what? Look, uh, I just, I, I'm not a crazy fan of the heat. I don't do well in it. I don't enjoy it. Uh... You know, give me the cold. I always tell people, I always prefer minus 40 to plus 40. Yeah. Well, I came from Edmonton to Montreal. Yeah. And in Edmonton, uh, the summer is, as you are annoyed with me talking about this point, perfect summer weather. Mm-hmm. Low, mid-20s. Yep. Sunny most of the time, unless it was like a rainstorm. It's very fun. I, you cannot say the word Edmonton without immediately following it up with the summers. The perfect summer yeah. weather. You cannot opinion. say anything about the city of Edmonton the without winter, this coming out. Very cold, but uh, I would take it mostly because of the lack of humidity. Sure. Here, it's so warm and humid, and no one has air conditioning. It's like this right. weird combo. We didn't need it. We didn't used to need it. Well, now what we happened? Well, I don't know. Maybe the climate's changing. <laughs> I don't believe it. Well, <laughs> I definitely do. Can't joke about that. This isn't a show about climate change, though, no. or the weather, the no. local weather. <laughs> Imagine it was a podcast just about yeah, local Yeah, that would come out 12 weeks <laughs> yeah, later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, what it is, is a show about science. Science, and science, comedy. science, science. Believe science. it or not, this is what we think comedy is. And we shoot the breeze. We shoot the breeze. Check, check, check. check. And uh, then exchange science, science facts. facts. Facts, facts. And then we have a great guest. Yes, I can't wait for our guest. Yes, I'm always excited. But first, we have to share science we facts. Did, we, we can't skip a to. step. We can't the skip a step. The guests will be irate and yep. angry and gassy if we do not share <laughs> Wait, science gassy? facts. How else do they get their science facts? Gassy? What? <laughs> you said gassy. Why do you keep saying gassy? Shall I go first? Sure. Ladies before gents. Well, Vinny, <laughs> a few episodes ago, I started very similarly. I'm going to do it the same. What do fire beetles, snakes, and vampire bats have in common? All delicious. <laughs> Got to take a guess. I, you know, it's impossible that you're going to get this, but I'm still going to uh, guess. All right. So, what are they? Fire beetles. Certain snakes. Certain snakes. And vampire bats. Vampire bats. Um, important to the regrowth of a forest after a fire. That's it. No. Oh. They all have this special superpower that is pretty rare, uh-huh. and that is the capability uh-huh. to sense weak radiating heat. Weak radiating heat. Yeah, what does that mean? Sen- well, you know, you can smell, you can see, you can yeah, taste. Well, yeah. some animals have an additional sense, a sixth sense, if you will, mm-hmm. to see dead people. To sense thermal hot people. energy. It says hot, hot people. people. <laughs> yes. I have that sense. The real, oh God, <laughs> the real hot or not uh, is in vampire bats. Now, I bring this up because we've recently found, oh, this is actually a couple years old, but I just found this. Okay. Recently-ish. Come on now. 
that dogs can too. Dogs can sense heat. Correct. Late, late thermal co- energy. Thermal imaging. Weak, weak thermal energy. Exactly. Right, right. And so this kind of helps explain why dogs yeah. who can't, you know, are lacking in some other senses can still hunt. Common success. sense. Yes. Common sense. Hearing. Yeah. Uh, comedic sense. And the thermal sense can help them hunt. Okay. So it's not just their sense of body. smell. Correct. Well, speaking of which though... How many times more sensitive is a dog nose at smelling than ours? Do you know? Two. Of course it's more sensitive. Two. Two times. A hundred million. What? A hundred million? A hundred million they times. They can detect things 100 million times yes. more sensitively. Can you imagine what that, that stinky dumpster we smelled in Belgium, <laughs> which is It's our, our, our barometer for stinkiness. For worst smell. Yeah. What a dog. It was smell. a hot day in Belgium, and we opened a fish market dumpster to throw something out. And to this day, we are scarred. I hate to quibble. It was a cold day. <laughs> it was. But it, it smelled, smelled like a hot day, yeah. let me tell you. Okay. Anyway, so, so, so yeah. Dogs. So dogs can sense thermal energy. Yeah. And apparently, like this is, uh, it, it seemed people were suspicious they might have this ability because of their nose. Having a nose that so why is it's cold and wet and cold. Yeah. Well, it's not what. Well, maybe it is, but that is a common element amongst some right. animals, I guess. So are they? Animals. So they going around like you know, like the predator vision? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah like a little bit. But it's not in the eyes; it's in the nose. It's in the nose. Their predator nose. They can like. Like you could feel your nose getting warmer or something oh. like that. Who knows? We don't have that sense, right? So the way they tested this was that they would have they just uh, a couple of objects. Okay. One that was like slightly warmer than the other and sort of detect the dog's ability to seek out the slightly warmer object. Okay. And they, they had to be trained. But then when they were trained, they had this capability, apparently. Okay. And so fire beetles... Now, are they called fire beetles because they like fire? Or therefore... I don't know. It was just okay. mentioned. This article's all about the dogs. Okay. But they're like, oh, Mostly. here are some, Here's other, some other animals. animals. It's not a okay. common ability. So there's snakes out there that could find us? and like. Well, who knows? I mean, if you think about it, like if you're hunting at night and you're an animal that doesn't have amazing vision, like bats, right? I guess they use echolocation yeah, too. But I would you'd, have you'd think that heat sensitivity would be such an hey, obvious superpower to every edge is an things. edge when you're a predator whoa that's we should cross stitch that somewhere every <laughs> edge is an edge man wow yeah it's fascinating so there you go all right dogs well, sniffing sn- out dogs. hot hot smells <laughs> hot new smells just dropping for dogs <gasps> what that's a life yeah what a life i wouldn't want to be a dog you would not want to be a dog mostly for this mostly the, for this smell hot Hot, smelly garbage is all I smell all day. Uh, you have a sensitive sense of smell, so you I already like I, have I'm a tough time. I'm a sensitive time. person to like criticism, but also <laughs> also to smell stimuli. Yeah, stimuli in any sounds. all senses. We have this. I'm a very light sleeper, right. and I have this this story that I think best exemplifies how sensitive I am. I have a distinct memory of being woken up to the sound of a single dry leaf scraping across my sidewalk. That was enough to wake me up one day. Well, you're a light sleeper. Well. That's yeah, my that's science your fact. fact. That's dog great. Smelling hot, dog, dog smell hot. That's all I have to say about Why that. Why do you keep adding the garbage part? Well, it's a hot, muggy day. They're not smelling the garbage; they're smelling the heat. I know, but they also have a nose that smells sensitive <laughs> things. So, a pile of hot garbage is would doubly be both bad, warm, yeah. and stinky. Okay, yes. I see. All right. Well, I'm glad we learned okay. that. Yep. Are you happy to know that? <laughs> now, Vinny, I all want right. your fact. You want my facts. Yeah. All right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you, how do you feel about babies, Katie? Human babies. Oh, my God. Adorable. We call them potatoes yeah, little in this potatoes. house. We yeah. see a little baby. It's a little potato. Yeah. I love a baby. How do you feel about babies in pain? <laughs> 
I hate it. Stop. Yeah, yeah we don't want that, right? No. We don't want that. Well, here's something that's interesting. There have been very few studies on baby pain. Wow. On how, how babies perceive and react to. I can think and, of many reasons why no yeah, one would volunteer their, their baby. baby to be tortured. Yes, exactly. And also babies can't talk about what they're feeling. Well, here's the thing. <gasps> Scientists have developed the infant pain scale. Oh, The newborn infant pain scale, NIPS. Now, I'm not making this up. So what happens is babies often have to undergo some testing when they're newborn, Mm -hmm. right? Now, sometimes you need to take blood from them. And the common way to do that is to do a little pinprick on the heel of their foot. They're little tiny babies that just come into this world. And you got to take their blood. It's sad, but it has to happen to test for, you know, whatever conditions may need to be tested for. And so you prick their heel. And then they cry and they're sad. No, I mean, no one would like it as an adult, but as a baby, you don't even know what's going on. And so they can tell, like, how much distress this baby is in using the infant pain scale. Ugh. However, oh, no. hot new research, okay. this is good, Okay, is that playing music soothes the savage baby. <gasps> Savage baby? Well, to the savage beast. beast. I was oh, okay. riffing off of that right. common phrase, sure. uh, which I would now hope had been more common. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah. So, one of the interesting things is they have two cohorts of babies who were going to be tested anyways. Uh, one where they pinpricked, got the blood, oh. and didn't do anything. And then they did pinprick, got the blood, and then played some... Mozart lullaby music, some baby Einstein Einstein stuff stuff for these babies. And it turns out by the metrics developed on this infant pain scale, the babies felt less pain when there was music. They recovered more quickly from this incident when the music was playing. And did the babies say why they think the music... Well, the babies went on at length, uh, (laughs) kind of had to cut them off at a certain point, but we don't know why. It's just there's something soothing about the music that maybe distracts them. I mean, we could hypothesize about what the mechanisms are. All we know is the result, which is that they are in distress for a shorter period of time. I heard that this pain skill was largely developed for babies tripping and falling. Uh, Nip slips. (laughs) God... I did not see that coming, and I'm sad that I didn't. Did they mention testing different types of music? Uh, they only did this one study, and they wanted to control for music, so they just used this one set of music, this lullaby music. How can a baby report pain? I don't know. I, I, they must just, like, they, they said they'd check in on one-minute intervals to see, like, whatever whatever they're measuring for infant distress crying squirming i don't know what the metrics are here yeah because how could you even i mean i, I would, mean you could tell that it was you know a baby in dis, a newborn in distress and a calm baby right well you're assuming crying is a negative thing maybe they're crying with joy <laughs> yeah ah! all right i don't think you're gonna be allowed on this t- test study uh one of the interesting things is that some previous any previous testing and not a lot of it has been done has been exclusively done on white babies and this study went out of its way to make sure that that wasn't a thing you know just as so many studies test on men versus you know completely ignoring the 51 percent of the population that is and white people Uh, yeah and so equally a lot of studies uh tend to be done you know if you're like oh we've got this university test oh we're just going to sample from the people around you well guess what that sample is not going to be generally representative of the general population so you end up with a white-favored bias of sampling uh, when it comes to your test cohort. Oh. So this study went out of its way to not do that, which I appreciated. But still tortured babies. All of the babies. I mean, they were going to get these heel pricks anyways. I'm assuming, unless they just went around and be like, hey, we're going to pinprick these babies for fun. 
and science. I couldn't do that. I couldn't. I know a that's baby's a tough foot. one. That's a tough one, huh? Can't you just tickle them and call it a day? Well, it doesn't distress them in the same. We have to study baby pain so we can avoid baby pain. Yeah, I guess it's a necessary evil. It's a necessary evil. I don't love it. I don't love it either. I feel bad for the babies. Sorry, babies of the world. Oh, little babies crying. They didn't deserve it. Hmm. Well, 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 good fact though. Good, good fact. fact. Well, we're lessening. We're lessening. Lessening pain. Lessening yes. pain. Focus. Focus, focus on, on the, the good. good. Focus on the good focus stuff. Focus on the good stuff. Okay. Well, that's enough uh, tomfoolery. We did our us. science facts. Check. 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 Okay. So we did our 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 our. our we did that. Yeah. And then we did our facts. What's next? What's next? Well, guess what? I get to introduce our <gasps> guest for today's episode. Whoa. Are you ready? Yes. Well, let's say hello to Asia Vigi. Uh, she's a PhD student at McGill University. She graduated with her bachelor's degree in bioengineering in 2022. Her current research focuses on transforming yeast cells into miniature factories Whoa. that are capable of sustainably producing useful compounds for human use. In her free time, she enjoys reading fantasy books, uh-huh. making miniature rooms, and has recently gotten into ceramics. Let's say hello to Azia. Hey, Azia. Hey. Hi. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. This is very, very exciting. So we're, we're talking transgenic organisms, I'm assuming. <laughs> Am I right? Am I right? Uh, well, we, easy, what? what? What's easy, a transgenic? Okay, well, You let's jumped start. right ahead. I saw transforming yeast cells. So let's 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 break this down for our our, yeah. our non enlightened like co-host. Uh, let's talk a bit about yeast. What the hell is a yeast, and why are we using it in this research? So yeast, well, they're very cool organisms. So there's a lot of different species and strains that you can use. So different versions of the same organism, but they're similar to um, we can think of bacteria. I think bacteria is maybe a little bit more well-known, it's single-celled, but where they essentially differ from bacteria is that they're a little bit more complex. So they're uh, called eukaryotic organisms, so a little bit closer to a human cell, let's say. Mm -hmm. So although they're this independent single cell, that's quite simple and very well studied, very well developed in terms of lab techniques to work with them, they're also a little bit more of a, a closer approximation to higher organisms, so animals, and they are fungus, so mushrooms and all these oh. these various different things. But yeah, and and specifically the yeast I use actually, I think this is pretty cool, is um, brewer's yeast. So baker's yeast, it's the same yeast that's been used for I think thousands of years in fermentation, so in beer making, um, in bread making. So it's the same same little guys doing doing some stuff for us nowadays. Interesting. We love them. On, on that, the brewers yeast, is it really like one species? Is it like a genus? There's a bunch of them that'll do it, or is it one species we use for all that? So typically, when we say brewers yeast, we're referring to uh, the species Saccharomyces cerevisiae. But you know, in brewing in general, I think they've experimented with different <laughs> organisms over the years. But this is the kind of typical budding yeast that people are referring to when they Ooh. say yeast or brewer's yeast. All right. And so you're using these yeast to make, the turning into factories to make things that humans can use. Is that what I'm understanding? Yeah. So again, here there's a... I guess a lot to unpack and uh, what I mean exactly by it, that, but I would actually, I'd say the, the first thing to kind of consider is that naturally in, in the environment, there's a lot of different organisms that produce things that are super useful for us, right? Like I think most of our drugs are developed originally from plant-based compounds, so chemicals and active ingredients. Um, and so 
there have been famous examples even within molds and fungi of this, right? Penicillin is one of them. I think it's maybe the first big example of this uh, where- My favorite mold byproduct. Yeah, I think it's one that (laughs) kind of revolutionized human history. Top five molds. Yeah. (laughs) So um, naturally organisms have these, these useful compounds, right? And so where transformation comes in is that when you're working with these simple organisms in particular like bacteria and like yeast, what you can do is you can give them the genetic information. So the kind of recipes for building some of these compounds that they naturally can't produce. And so to do this, we usually do a process called transformation, which is when you give them this new DNA material Mm -hmm. uh, that they don't already contain so that they can then, you know, use that as an instruction booklet. All right. So I'm thinking like Jurassic Park. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think it's a little different, but I guess it's within the realm of uh, genetically modified organisms. So I think that that definitely falls within there. So, So with transformation, when I think of what's going on with bacteria, typically you stick like a gene, like a recipe to make a cool thing into a plasmid which are like little Mm -hmm. circles of DNA. Mm. And then you convince the bacteria to take up, well, you give them, you don't talk to them, but you give them- Hello, bacteria. (laughs) Would you like some plasmids? That's your charismatic voice. You give them the environment that's going to make them want to pick up stuff or be porous, and then they pick up the plasmid. And a lot of that works because bacteria in nature are trading plasmids like playing cards. There's mechanisms for them to do that naturally, and we sort of exploit that. When it comes to yeast, I I, I know a lot less. Do they- do they have a naturally occurring plasmid exchange system or, or, or is that just a bacteria thing? So the, the procedure is actually, it is in terms of the general steps, it's almost identical to when you're working with bacteria. Yeast are just a little bit more uh, sensitive. So they're a little bit more fragile to work with. You can kill the cells mm. more easily. Sounds but like they do actors. Have a, so <laughs> um, you do have to induce this competency in the cells. So use it through um there's different methods actually that you can use but mainly um, i use a chemical based method so you give them this lithium acetate uh, mixture and the mixture of the chemicals that you're giving it essentially you know open up the pores of the cells it allows for the the dna to enter very similar to to when you do this with uh, with bacteria but you do induce this competency so naturally the yeast cells aren't just absorbing dna or exchanging DNA from their environment, it's something that you induce into the cells. Hmm. Um, but yeah. And so you're building these little packages. The the yeast like is like, oh, this is for me, and I take it in, and then it just like the little mechanisms inside are just going to generate whatever you tell it. You kind of like snuck it in there. Yeah, and it's actually funny because we so usually when you work with yeast, you work with bacteria, especially E. coli, a lot as well, hmm. because we kind of take advantage of the bacteria to produce the DNA for us. And then we actually extract it from the bacteria and then give it to the yeast cells. Okay. So usually you're doing a lot of bacterial transformation as well uh, in the in the process, but just to um, produce these plasmids, which these circular strands of DNA containing your genes. Um, so actually, typically, when you're designing these experiments, the plasmids that you're creating, these, again, the circular strands of DNA contain these, we can call them convincing factors for both bacteria and yeast to take them up. So in theory, in theory, this does mean like if you're producing a protein, um, you could produce it in the bacteria as well. It's just some proteins. So 
these just to base give the basic definition of a protein these kind of structures that are formed within the cell from the dna these little active structures uh, some of them are a little bit too complex for a lot of bacteria which is why we use yeast Um, so so yeast is is like a little bit better it's a little bit more a little bit more complex yeah a little bit again a little bit more like any animal or human cell not quite but it's it's like a level two yeah Yeah, (laughs) well because bacteria so bacteria are prokaryotes we're eukaryotes so we're a little different in how we handle the yeast is a eukaryote Correct. So, right. so it, it has, it, so it's a double-edged sword, right? It has the, the abilities to recognize and deal with things that are close to us, but now you're dealing with, yeah, a fancy actor. They're, they're, they're not as easy to, to convince as and, like and an E. coli. So, okay. So we're using E. coli because it's like, oh, this is like baby talk. And then we're like, all right, we're gonna, <laughs> we need to like have a, like a book come out of this. So send it to the smart guy, which is yeast. Basically, E. coli are just, it's just a lot easier to work with bacteria when you're working with making copies of DNA than with yeast. And we still use bacteria for something. So, so is it, is it when we're trying to make a lot of, say, a protein that has like higher order structure, like proteins made of multiple polypeptides? Like, what is it, what does it mean to be a complicated protein that requires or does better if we stick it in a yeast? So, the main reason I I specifically use yeast is because the proteins I'm trying to produce will actually naturally localize themselves and fold correctly into their structures Ah. when they're located in a membrane or membrane bound organelle. So in bacteria, we don't, we don't have this uh, because they're prokaryotes. So this is why we need to work with yeast. Uh, So they associate to fats, we can think of the fats in the cell and actually the compounds I'm producing as well. One of the main compounds I work with is a lipid. It's a fat. So when it's produced in the cell, it'll actually associate to this membrane. So it's important mm. to have this membrane structure there. Other people will work with yeast as well because of certain post-translational yeah. modifications in the protein, but this gets more technical. And I think essentially the main idea is that they will only kind of form the correct structures in yeast in my particular cool. case. Yeah. yeah. And so the idea here is you've got a uh, like a specific target like a protein or more molecule that you've got in mind and you're like, all right, I need to make a ton of this stuff. And so I'm going to like, I'm going to build the pre, I'm going to give the instructions to this E. coli. This E. coli is going to give me the instructions that a yeast can read. The yeast takes it and is like, I love this stuff. I'm going to make a ton of it. And because it re- re- reproduces so quickly in, numer- in such numbers that you end up with like a pretty easy way of making this target molecule. Is that what I'm understanding? Yeah. And sometimes, you know, optimizing it. So these compounds aren't necessarily always good for the yeast. Sometimes it can be <laughs> toxic to the cell. Sorry, so yeast. what is good about yeast and bacteria as well, right? We use bacteria in industry all the time, but it's really that you can scale up the production. So mm-hmm. you can get these massive fermentation tanks and this is almost an entirely you know different field of of people who really specialize in Mm -hmm. that fermentation procedure but they will really really optimize it to kind of maximize the yield so for each sugar you're putting in to feed the yeast you're getting more and more of your your product of interest and what's cool too is that if you start to combine different research fields there's a lot of people looking at using waste to feed the yeast Hmm. so you could take waste sugars and waste kind of biomass some people are looking at breaking down plastics and using the different carbons in there to feed the yeast so you can create these really circular economies with it so 
that's one thing that's cool. Harsh. They're, they're happy come... with just a little yeah. bit. They don't... Are they happy? Do the, do the <laughs> nips test happy. on the yeast. <laughs> yeah, you know what? Capitalism uh, ruins yeast too. No, but this is fascinating. So this is just this really cool way of like really getting... And so, like, these target, well, you know, product of interest, as I think you called it. And so, you've got this vat of fermenting yeast making a bunch of stuff. <laughs> and it's like, all right, well, how do I get it out of, yeah. like, how do you retrieve it once you've got the yeast making the thing that you want it to make? It actually, again, depends on what you're trying to make. Okay. So, some people will use these microbes to produce proteins. So, you can use proteins for therapy, like insulin, things like this as well. So, in this case after the yeast has grown for a certain period of time and produced enough of this protein, you can then extract it. So you'll break down the cells, you go through all these purification procedures, and then you'll eventually, you know, get your your protein and these can be used in therapies and they work on this for gene therapies, vaccine production. In my case, actually, the compounds being produced, so mainly two different categories I work with. The big one for industry would be a group called carotenoids. So they're essentially, uh, you may be familiar with beta carotene. It's in pretty much any multivitamin that you take. So carotenoids are essentially the compounds that make pretty much anything that's orange, orange <laughs> in the natural environment, um, yeah. including like the egg yolk and the chicken egg or, okay. uh, you know, some of the taint in fish and hmm. a shrimp comes from hmm. these, these compounds. Okay. Um, so in the case of this, these compounds, they're not, they're not a protein. Uh, they can be purified afterwards if you're looking for one you know, particular extract. But what's really nice is that for a lot of the applications we, we want uh, to use the carotenoids and we can use the whole cell. So you can just produce the yeast and then dry up this yeast and then just use the cells directly oh. that already produce this compound. So and, you don't even um, have to extract it in any way. No, it depends on your your purpose, but for for this group of compounds, we don't need it to really be purified, so you can just kind of use it like that. And yeah, that's the main kind of approach in industry, but you can always break them down. So it depends where the compound's located. They're located in cell walls, so you would break them down, purify and that's pretty that's much it. Yeah. So so the instructions for building the carotenoids are in the DNA? Yeah, so I always think of DNA for being proteins, man. You're blowing my mind, Asia. <laughs> because what the DNA has is the instructions to build the proteins that will make the uh... compounds that we want. Um, <laughs> okay. So, yeah, so that's that's essentially it. It's always the proteins doing the work, but in this case, yeah. our end goal isn't proteins, it's these compounds. Fascinating. Fascinating. <laughs> Arcane Ninja RPG tells a story about ninjas and magic by mixing improv and role-playing. Meet our fledgling ninja and fall for them as they take their graduation exam and stumble upon unknown magic that will send them in an epic adventure. Root for them as the dice dictate just how successfully they face the threatening challenges that lay ahead. Binge on published episodes at the Pot Cavern Network or your podcast station of choice. Tune in every other Tuesday for your bi-weekly fix of Arcane Ninja RPG. Thanks for listening. So what kind of protein... I never think of proteins making things, but of course they do. Is it is it enzymes that are assembling? They're enzymes. Okay. All enzymes, yeah. So the enzymes that uh, I introduce are naturally found in, in plants, uh, mainly. 
Uh, and in plants, they're the enzymes that will complete these natural pathways and to make the pigments that give the coloration hmm. to the leaves or to the, you know, skin of a pumpkin, <laughs> whatever it is. And then it's these, the DNA encoding for these enzymes that I'm putting in the yeast. So you're adding the enzymes too? Not directly. I'm okay. adding these instructions to make the enzymes. The DNA will make the enzymes. Oh. And then once the enzymes are there, they're like, let me make a carotenoid. Okay. They do their thing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And the reason this works too is because we are introducing enzymes in such a way that it's using naturally occurring pathways in the yeast. Right. You already. don't have to do anything. They just, no, here's the so instructions. We... Here's the, oh, I well, made She's an doing plenty. Let's not diminish <laughs> Asia's contribution. You're, so you're doing nothing, Asia. <laughs> So why do we, what's the point of this? Why do I want to make a bunch of carotenoid filled cell membrane? What's the, then what do you do? What do you do? You give it to new species so that they are full of carotenoids and that's good for us or what, what do you do with them? So for the, for carotenoids, the main uses is, is, uh, is industrial in animal feed oh. and also for, so I work, I'm trying to produce one specific carotenoid. Um, and this one also has applications as vitamins for humans. It's called lutein. It uh, helps with age-related macular degeneration, so it helps keep your eyesight good over time. Mm. The other compound I work with um, is a tanchinone, and these are chemotherapeutic compounds. They're cancer, anti-cancer compounds, actually, mm -hmm. would be a better way to say it. So it could be used in treatment and the development of different medicines to treat cancers, um, specific cancers, not all of them. But the main reason we even you know, try to do this, you know, I think a common question is why not just take it directly from the plants, right? If yeah. the plants can naturally sure. produce it. That was our and next so, question. That was our next yeah, question. No, but it, it makes sense, right? It's like, why would you go through all this trouble? And uh, the main reason, and I think especially when it comes to like these medicinal compounds is that the way they're produced in plants, they're produced in something called a, a secondary metabolism. So it is not their primary central production mechanisms for the things that they need to grow. It is, it's kind of like a side pathway. It's what makes all the signaling hormones in plants and things like this. And so they're produced in very, very small quantities, very, very small quantities. Mm. And so when we want to extract them from the plants, the procedure, I mean, it takes a huge amount of resources, a huge amount of time. It's very dependent on uh, climate. It's de dependent on harvest. A lot of times we can't produce these fully synthetically. We can't produce them chemically. So it can make the procedures very expensive in, in some cases, not in all, but in some cases. And it can make the procedure, you know, very inaccessible to the general worldwide mm -hmm. population. And so the idea with yeast is that it's kind of, First of all, if you can scale up the procedure enough, which it is very scalable, it reduces the cost, which makes it more accessible economically to people. And I think especially when it comes to medicine, this is something mm -hmm. that's super important to consider. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cheap. Um, and it's better for the environment, too, usually. Right. right. You're not taking up all this land. And yeah. So carotenoids, correct me, I'm probably wrong here. There's a link somewhere between carotenoids and vitamin A. Am I am I correct? beta carotene yes. and vitamin A or the it's a type of carotenoid so. or something. So like, I know why we need carotenoids. Why does a plant need carotenoids? They ain't got no eyes. Yeah. So um, plants need carotenoids. So some algae produce it as well. So microalgae, most of them act as a sort of in relation to the pigment. So you can think of like chlorophyll giving these green kind of coloration to the leaves. Uh, they're kind of acting as a secondary pigment. So a lot of it is to do with 
and it depends exactly on which mm. one you're looking at but to do with absorption of light which is important for photosynthetic organisms but a lot of carotenoids and even for for humans one of the reasons and animals in general one of the reasons are super important is because they are antioxidants and so in this kind of light activated pathway even in plants um, you're producing a lot of these oxygen byproducts that are highly reactive it's not the oxygen that we need kind of to breathe it's a, a different form of oxygen right. that has these free electrons <laughs> Yeah. And so these antioxidants will help counteract and balance out the effects of these pro-oxidants that are produced mm. in these pathways. So this is one of the natural, I'm, uh, you know, evolutionary reasons for it. This is, and I, this is not um, my area of expertise, but it's similar to, you know, when the, the sunlight starts changing in the fall and the green pigmentation dies off and the leaves are all orange, it's these carotenoids becoming visible. They're always mm. there, but now mm -hmm. they're becoming visible because they do have this important role while in the leaves and in photosynthesis yeah now can we use this method that you're you're using with yeast to make anything or <laughs> what like what are the limits right now here oh it's i mean this field is, <laughs> is a very rapidly growing one in some ways there are no limits okay. um there's a few big groups now like if you look nasa has this um food space food mm. space food challenge okay and this is like a big uh example of it if you just google nasa space food challenge i think you'll see i think yeast comes up as one of them because yeast is also being looked at as a way to produce alternatives to dairy alternatives to meat mm. as well as just like this sugar i don't know if we would want to just eat yeast but maybe to enhance the nutritional <laughs> value of certain like things yeast oatmeal nutritional yeast Ugh. Yeah, so yeast is really, really being looked at to produce a lot of the foods of the future, if you will, you know, in quotation marks, <laughs> right? Um, and space foods. Uh, but and I, I think the idea there too is just this idea of accessibility, because really, as long as you can build a tank that'll grow the yeast, you can produce whatever, whatever it is you that want. your yeast has been. Yeah, wow. and there there aren't really any limitations. There's like laboratory scientific limitations. Some things are harder right. than others to produce, but. In theory, you know, <laughs> with That's time, amazing. I think most things can be made. Like yeah. an amazing organic 3D printer. Well, yeah, kind of. And I think that's that's what's really cool about using these microbes is because they have this natural capacity to convert right. sugars into whatever else uh, an organism needs. So. That's now, Asia, I love food. I get a lot of pleasure from food. I'm scared of this future you're working towards. <laughs> We're eating bowls and dry oh God, How do we stop you, <laughs> evil genius? How do we stop you? I, I have no intention on eating yeast uh, every day for the rest of my life so that's you know, the world you want yeast admit a, it <laughs> big it yeast it has a very particular smell i smell it enough on a daily basis Ooh, i would rather not oh, it just smells tough. like rotting bread a little yeah, bit fermentation you know, it's a very, like, acidic bread um, acidic bread <laughs> yeah, it's not great yeah okay you're not so i'm not sold on it yet for food <laughs> so as you know asia and sejep we do a little bit of transformation and i mean i i'm an ecologist this is not my area but you know the, the steps seem to be you know yeah you, you, you got you got the gene for the thing you want i mean you had to make it to begin with so we're sort of jumping in mid-process you stick it in a plasmid you stick that plasmid in the yeast the yeast grows and replicates and makes a bunch of it what's like the biggest challenge 
in that rough framework or an additional step that I omitted? Like, what's like the real clincher for you as a scientist? Like, oh, this part is so hard to get to be successful. So assuming you have your DNA sequence and you haven't accidentally introduced like a random mutation, (laughs) you know, assuming you haven't contaminated your samples, because this is very easy, right? So a bacteria is a contaminant to yeast. So Typically, when I'm working on a yeast transformation, so bacteria, a lot of times we work around just a Bunsen burner because the Bunsen burner will create the sterile, depends Mm. the bacteria you're working with, but E. coli creates a sterile sterile area around the the flame. But when you're working with yeast, you in theory could use the Bunsen burner, but we often use a biosafety cabinet. It's kind Mm. of like a fume hood, but just optimized to keep, you know, you're not... The air is filtered in a yeah. different way because yeah. it's it's um, microbes that you're working with in there. Um, so I think the the biggest challenge is is human error a lot of mm. times in the sense that it is super easy to introduce bacteria into your samples. But also yeast cells are both they're not necessarily super welcoming to the DNA that you're putting in. <laughs> so you do yeah. have to you know open the walls up and shock them with some heat so that you know they'll open and then make sure that they close and that the cells recover Uh, but at the same time are very fragile so it's super easy to Mm. kill your cells when you're working with them i'm not quite as easy as mammalian cells i will say that way easier really yeah no no, way easier this is not um but they're they're challenging but in Mm. general the transformation process is something that's been pretty optimized over time so this is not typically the uh, barrier it can be, but it's not the limiting kind of step hmm. in the, the process. It's more the growth and the production and making sure your DNA sequences are correct and things like that. So, yeah. I mean, maybe one day we'll make a yeast that could eliminate the human error in this process. Whoa. The, we have a yeast train to make more yeast stuff. That's, yeah. That's the future. That's what you want? That's, that's the future that's, you want? That's, no, I don't. So, okay. So... This sounds like really exciting, like an amazing way to produce a whole variety of things that we can use. What would be something like, oh man, if we could make this, mm. this would be like like top of the list to make. The Mount Everest. Like, is it is it carotenoids or ca- beta carotene? Or is it like, man, if I could make, I don't know, uh, <laughs> aspirin. <laughs> I think it's mainly, I, I'm not sure of the exact, name of the study but quite some time ago there was this massive study that was conducted on plants um, looking at every single compound in a bunch of different plant species what is useful for humans and from this study they found a lot of different compounds that were super effective in treating i think you know cancer is a a big Mm. one but not only cancers but cancer is a big category that a lot of money has been invested into into finding various cures for cancer yeah, so uh, from this study, they essentially found a number of, of these um, mm-hmm. agents that would be super effective in treating these different cancers. And so one of them is Taxol. This one is is quite well known, I believe, for breast cancer, but don't quote me on that. But yeah, so essentially, I think these these are the ones that really people are looking at because yeah. of the fact of that course. they're produced in such low quantities in plants. I mean, you need like numerous trees just to get one milligram. So it's it's not right. feasible. It's extremely expensive and and just not sustainable in any way. Uh, even if you were someone who didn't care about like the forest itself, it's not you know something that can be scaled up to actually help any significant number of people. So I think these are really really where the field focuses a lot of efforts. Yeah. Right. Well, if you could do it in a vat, then you're golden. 
Yeah, it'd be great. And and that's the problem is that uh, traditionally a lot of like chemical synthesis, right, is used, but it, because the, some of these compounds are just so complex right. and so specific that, you know, one bond just attached in the wrong orientation makes a completely different compound. And so that's mm -hmm. why using these natural organisms is just easier sometimes. Yeah. Cool. Now, I know a tiny bit about bacteria's sort of autoimmune system for dealing with the things that infect them, which are viruses, and we exploit some of that to do this technology. But what do yeasts have a natural autoimmune system that you need to suppress? Like when you're trying to stick a, you know, something in a yeast, do you have to suppress something to keep it from fighting it? So we're not so much suppressing. So one thing that is interesting, actually, an interesting difference between working with bacteria and yeast is that when you're working with bacteria, typically you'll use, take advantage of um, antibiotic resistance to kind of convince the bacteria to take up these genes. So what you do mm. is um, you add the gene encoding for the resistance, uh, something that will produce mm. resistance to an antibiotic. Uh, and then you grow the bacteria in the antibiotic with antibiotic in their, in their growth culture. So only the bacteria that have taken up that gene alongside a gene of interest yeah. usually will be able to grow. Oh. In yeast, we don't really use this mechanism. You can, there are some antibiotics, anti-fungicides, I guess that, that you can use, but they're not as selective because yeast are more complex. They do have a lot more kind of defense mechanisms in place. If you were to just add an antibiotic and things like that in their, in their media. So what we actually take advantage of are the amino acids. So these are the essential amino acids that any organism needs to survive what we do is we the yeast we work with in the lab is actually incapable we've engineered it to being uh, incapable of producing some mm. of these essential ones and then we don't add it to their growth media but we add the gene encoding for how to produce them right. on alongside our, our gene of interest so um, that's typically the approach we take so it's called oxytropic selection it's it's a deficiency Classic. yeah in the, <laughs> the growth media yeah Got him, got him. Got him, oxytrophic again. We tricked him. Um, so how'd you get into this, Azia? How'd you get into the biotech yeah. and stuff? That's a, a really good question. Nice. So as part of my, my undergrad, it was, you know, a degree requirement. I had to do a research project and a capstone. So I'm in engineering. A capstone just means this eight-month kind of group design project. Uh, at the time, my PI, my supervisor, she was a, a newer professor in the department. So she was setting up her lab. Um, and no one was really doing research in this general, generally referred to as synthetic biology, this kind of field. And so, you know, I started researching, the cor her courses started popping up and they were new and I was curious. So I reached out to her. I did um, a summer research project with her and eventually the capstone. And then she said, hey, do you, <laughs> you want to stay uh, on? Uh, I think you're you're doing a good job. And I said, mm -hmm. yeah, you know what? Actually, I would I would like to stay on. So this is how I, I kind of ended up here. Cool. It's something that always just really fascinated me. It's this capacity of, of again, of natural organisms to mm -hmm. just make stuff. It's just really cool. Yeah. That is very, very cool. Absolutely. And yeah, how, like were you, as a kid, were you like, oh, I love building things? Are you like, were you naturally engineering inclined? Or is this something you discovered later on? I have... I've had many uh, passions in my life. <laughs> when I was much younger, I was convinced I would go into like classical music. Uh, oh. I was one of those like seven-year-old kids. My mom took me to Juilliard at the time. I would have never gotten into wow. Juilliard, but this was my, you know, big goal. Uh, right. so I was very, my mother's quite artistic. So I think that's just naturally where I, I kind of got pushed. 
but I used to always do these little kits with my dad. We'd build model airplanes and we would build these, um, you know, they have those little like STEM, uh, build a little robot kits. Yes. Right. Uh, so that's how it kind of started. And so one day I was trying to decide uh, what I, I wanted to go into in Sejep. I was there and I was kind of just like, okay, what do I, what do I like? And I liked biology and I liked math. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, because bioengineering as a, as a whole, the undergrad, it can be a lot of different things. I mean, mm-hmm. some sure. of my friends are building, you know, robots for surgery. Like it's quite right. diverse in terms of as a field. It's very multidisciplinary. And that's also what I liked. And I think that yeah. may be the part of my character that carried through. It's this more, this desire to do something that isn't necessarily one specific thing it's kind of like you know you get to explore many different things so yeah (laughs) and even in your off time you're building yeah you listen to one of your hobbies building miniature rooms we had to get through all the transformation talk to get here here. i need to hear more about what you're building and what tiny mice are they for yeast how miniature are these rooms (laughs) they're not that miniature so i I don't know what got me into this. It may have been TikToks. I do like having a little arts and craft yeah. hobby on the side. Um, and so it started with these kits that you could buy to make miniature coffee shops or miniature greenhouses. Mm-hmm. And then it kind of went out of control from there. Are we talking book nooks or, or like quite. dollhouses? Okay. I wouldn't call them a dollhouse. I wouldn't call them these little books. They're kind of an in-between. Like, okay. you're just making like the very first kit I got was like a, a miniature greenhouse and flower shop. Wow. Uh, and so from there, this weird thing started happening where then every little piece of trash I had, I was like, oh, this could be a flower pot or this could be <laughs> like, you know, a broom. So I, I just have this box of essentially trash that every once in a while I pull out and I, you know, I make a little something for for one of my How little cool various. Is this? Yeah, I'm hoping Stretching. that after the recording, you will show one to us because I'm dying to see this. <laughs> I've gotten a bit into book nooking, and I get it. Yeah. It's very so, satisfying the gluing of tiny things. Yeah, and I I have given some of the ones I've made to my dad just to, to keep because I can keep them in my apartment. But um, <laughs> a lot of times it's just like little things. Like I'll make a little flower pot and then. Uh, yeah, I made this little uh, fruit cup with little strawberries in it the other day. Uh, but it's just little things like this. This sounds amazing. Yeah, I love so. this. I, I, I first thought of miniature making from the TV show The Wire, Wire. Yeah. where a detective very famously would, well, he was bored at work, at least at the beginning of the series, build like doll furniture. And he made a remark that like that's how he makes most of his money. And just like this tiny, tiny little Yeah, that stuff things. goes for a lot. If you want to buy it on Etsy or something, it's pretty pricey. I always consider if I was gonna, I think I'd consider selling some on the side. But for now, for now, we are. You will need to tell us if you're making yeast-sized yogurt fruit cups. I want to. I mean, or we just train the yeast to do it for us. Oh my gosh! (laughs) But then we would deprive Asia of the joy of making it. Yeah. Well, Asia, this has been amazing. Thank you for taking the time away from the the smelly acid bread (laughs) yeast to tell us about your research. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for thanks for having me. Uh, Thank keep you. Keep fighting the good fight. Yeah. Wow, this is really cool. Have you heard of Transformation, Vinny? Is no, this, new? I, this is totally new to me. Yeah, I mean, it makes total sense that, like, you know, some, nature is making stuff all the time, right? Like, it just can't stop it. Uh, and if we can kind of direct it to make stuff that we humans need and this uh, way of, you know, just generating a lot of it in a really efficient way, 
Why not? How great is that? What a great idea. Absolutely. Way better for the environment, economically, yeah. making these things far more uh, affordable. And these stuff that we need, like, yeah. you know, like these uh, medicines that, I, yeah, must be super rare, but maybe effective in humans. Yeah, why don't we just get yeast to make it? Just kick it over to them and give them a little sugar and kick out some medicine. <laughs> you don't even need to give them the good sugar. Trash. Trash. Hell you, right. trash. Yeah, Turning yeah. trash into treasure. That's, that's yeast. It. That's yeast. Thank you, yeast. Thank you, yeast. This episode's dedicated to yeast. I think that's it for us today. Uh, we learned a lot. We learned yep. a lot about the thing you talked about. Yeah, babies. We learned a lot about babies. Yeah, little babies. Sad. The nips test. <laughs> the nips test. Yes. And, and dog noses. And dog noses. Smelling out heat. stink garbage. Detecting hotties. <laughs> and transformation use. <laughs> and transformation use. Yeah. All right, Vinny. Why don't you send them out on our socials? Well, if you're interested in following us, you can check us out at LRG Pod on Facebook, Instagram. TikTok and on YouTube, you can just search us. We're not Allergy Pod on YouTube, unfortunately. Well, just look up we couldn't get them all. Uh, but learn a real good <laughs> podcast on YouTube. You'll find us. And if you or you know somebody who would be interested in being a guest on oh, our podcast, yeah, if you're into STEM in the grad student in the STEM fields, just send us an email at learnrealgoodpodcast at gmail that's learnrealgoodpodcast at gmail.com. Well, that's it for us this time. Thank you, Vinny. Thank you, Katie. Thank you, Ozia. Amazing. Thank you for listening. Thank you, Yeast. Thank you, Yeast. <laughs> Thank you, Dog Noses. Yes. Thank, Thank you, you, everyone. Babies. See you next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.